Welcome to the Bell Shoals Women Podcast. This is April Swears, and you are tuning in to week six of our Heaven Study. This is the lesson that corresponds with week five of the homework on the resurrection. Now, this one's going to sound a little bit different because of a stomach bug. I had to cancel the Tuesday morning class, so we didn't get a live recording. So I'm here in my little podcast studio at my house. It's about 530 in the morning. Everyone is still sleeping. It's my favorite time of day. And I'm super excited to spend it with you. All that to say, this one's going to have a little bit different feel. I'm going to have to laugh at all my own jokes. Bummer. (laughs) But as you just saw there, I'm good at it. So no big deal, right? (laughs) One thing before we dive into the lesson, and this is specifically for those who attend the Tuesday morning class. When I had to cancel on Tuesday, I planned to stick with the original schedule and have you make up the resurrection lesson by listening to this podcast episode. But after thinking it through a little more, I'm going to go ahead and teach this one live on Tuesday, September 27th. 1 Corinthians 15 is just so vital to our understanding of heaven. I don't want to risk some not being able to listen to the podcast. So if you plan to be at Bible study this coming Tuesday, you don't need to listen to any more of this unless, of course, you want to hear it twice. All right, friends, it's time to dig into the lesson for this week. If you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians 15. The link for the listening guide should be there for you in the show notes if you want to print that out as well. In 1963, the song Puff the Magic Dragon by folk artist Peter, Paul, and Mary was released into the world. The chorus contained these lyrics. Puff the Magic Dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land, Conhonali. Now, I'm going to spare you the actual singing of the song, but I am very, very tempted. A little too early for that, though. (laughs) The song was extremely popular, reaching number two on the music charts at the time. Now, around that same time, something was brewing. A new generation was starting to reject the social and ethical values of the past. Drug experimentation was becoming more prevalent. And in the minds of younger generations, the song Puff the Magic Dragon was rumored to have a subtext to be something more than a children's song about a mythical dragon. People began interpreting the lyrics based on their worldview and saw it as a song about marijuana smoking. Newsweek magazine even had a cover story about sneaky covert drug messages in seemingly innocent songs. The rumor, based on the cultural views and assumptions of the time, was that puff was an obvious metaphor for smoking pot. Autumn Mist, another part of the lyric, was understood to be a symbolic reference to clouds of marijuana smoke, and the land of Holony was interpreted as a reference to a Hawaiian village known for its particularly potent marijuana plants. Now, eventually, the authors of the song had enough and issued an official statement to clarify what they meant when they wrote the song. Here's a quote from co-writer Peter Yarrow. When Puff was written, I was too innocent to know about drugs. What kind of mean-spirited SOB would write a children's song with a covert drug message? End quote. The other co-writer, Leonard Lipton, said this. Puff is about loss of innocence and having to face an adult world. It's surely not about drugs. I can tell you that at Cornell in 1959, no one smoked grass. I find the fact that people interpret it as a drug song annoying. It would be insidious to propagandize about drugs in a song for little kids. Now, I share this with you to illustrate 
how easy it is to hijack the true meaning of something and replace it with whatever best suits the values and worldview of our culture and our time. If we can do this with a song that's relatively recent, uh, think how much we do this with the Bible and its ancient text. Well, today we're focusing on the resurrection, specifically as it is presented to us in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to run into words and phrases like this. Just going to throw them at you. We'll look at them in detail in a few minutes. Uh, We're going to see phrases like spiritual bodies, clothed with incorruptibility, clothed with immortality. We're going to see the phrase, we will bear the image of the man of heaven, and also the phrase, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in our Christian culture, because of the profound influence of Platonism, which we looked at in the very first week we were together, these phrases are often interpreted as teaching that heaven is a non-material, non-physical, ghost-like existence. And because of the profound influence of classic dispensationalism, which we also talked about our first week together, uh, this is presumed to be an otherworldly existence, not here on earth, but way up there in the clouds somewhere. The idea being that heaven is finally getting to escape this godforsaken planet before he burns it all to the ground. Now, the challenge facing Christians in every culture, including ours, is to come back to the original eyewitness testimony of those who actually experienced the risen Jesus and read the inspired scripture with a determination to see what Paul and Peter and John and all the authors of scripture, what they actually intended to communicate, regardless of how well that fits into our own personal assumptions. We have to let scripture shape our worldview and values, not the other way around. Saying that a spiritual body is a non-material body is analogous to saying that Puff the Magic Dragon is about pot smoking. We're simply imposing our understanding of life after death onto what the Bible is actually saying. So today, I want to invite you to take a look at the resurrection and its implications with fresh eyes. Lay your assumptions aside, come back to the text, ask the question, what does this really mean? And I think we are going to learn a thing or two, and it's going to be really, really exciting. All right, so we're going to start by reviewing that New Testament eschatological timeline. By now, the word eschatological should not be big and scary. It just means end times. Eschatology is the study of the end times. So an eschatological timeline is one that's showing us kind of the big picture and how things are going to end up. Now, as I said last week, this timeline that you see at the top of your listening guide there, it's the bare bones, basic timeline that we get in the New Testament. Depending on how you interpret Revelation 20 and the Millennial Kingdom, you might 
very well add some stuff to that timeline. I made a very intentional decision not to spend any time on Revelation 20 because regardless of what happens, whether the thousand year reign is literal and still to come after the tribulation or whether it's figurative and happening now, it's all going to end up the same way with an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called the New Jerusalem because the beauty and goodness of Eden has been expanded through the whole world. Remember that? God's plan A? Yeah, it's going to happen. And however complicated your preferred eschatological timeline is, that consummated kingdom of God part at the end of that timeline, it's a sure thing. It's going to happen. The part of this timeline I want to highlight today are those two main events that inaugurate the kingdom and consummate the kingdom. If you look at those two main events, there's something they both have in common. They both involve a resurrection, right? So that first coming of Jesus involved his death and resurrection. The second second coming of Jesus will involve our resurrection. Now, here's why both of the major events on that timeline involve a resurrection. And this is so important for us to understand. Here's the reason. Resurrection is the focal point of the Christian gospel. And it is the foundation of the Christian hope. I want to show you this in our passage. Go ahead and take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. All right, so we're clued in to hear that Paul is about to lay out very clearly what he considers to be the gospel, the good news of Jesus, verse 2, and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And most New Testament scholars believe what he's about to say here in the next verse is actually one of the earliest Christian creeds. He's actually quoting from something that was already circulating at the time. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That phrase, according to the scriptures, is like a big ding, 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 ding. Hello. The Old Testament is really, really super important for understanding Jesus in the gospel. Don't ignore it. You need to read it, and you need to study it, and you need to learn it. That's my interpretation, of course, but <laughs> it's actually really important. All right, let me get back to what this. The, let me get back to the to the to the gospel here. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. So like for Paul's original audience, he's like, you know, if you want to go talk to one of them, you can. (laughs) But some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. All right, let's make some observations. First, I want to note that Paul includes Christ dying on the cross for our sins as a major, major part of 
the gospel. I think we all know that. But interestingly enough, it's not what he focuses the most on here. His emphasis in these verses I just read is on Christ appearing. It's on him being seen by all these people. He was seen by all these people because he rose bodily from the dead. Here's why this matters. Skip down to verse 16. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And that word perished has a finality to it. It's a destruction word. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. What he's basically saying there is that without the resurrection, the cross is simply the tragic death of a remarkable figure who had a profound influence on the world. The only reason the cross has any power is because three days later, that tomb was empty. And what this means on a real practical level is that we ought to be making a much bigger deal out of Easter than we do even Good Friday or Christmas. Now, do I personally do that? No, I don't. Am I challenged by this study to move in that direction? Oh, yes, I am. I have a friend who is uh, Greek Orthodox, and I'm not super familiar with that faith tradition, but I do know one thing. They get, they get this right. They celebrate the resurrection right. It's a big honking Easter party that extends for a much longer time than um, our Western faith traditions do. And so if you've got a Greek Orthodox friend, oh, maybe like ask them for some mentoring on this whole like making a big deal out of the resurrection thing. I know I'm, I'm wanting to do that. <laughs> all right. All that to say, there is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus is what guarantees the resurrection of believers and the resurrection and restoration of the entire created universe. Now, why is Paul harping on this? Why is he making such a big deal out of this? Why does 1 Corinthians 15 exist? Well, the Corinthian church to whom Paul was writing, they weren't really buying this whole resurrection of believers thing. Uh, seems to be that they were fine with the resurrection of Jesus, but they did not connect that to their own bodily resurrection at the end of the age. And here's why. I have a quote for you on the listening guide from Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians. Here it is. The key issue leading to their denial of the resurrection has to do with being pneumatikos, which is the Greek word for spiritual. The Corinthians were convinced that by the gifts of the Spirit, and especially the manifestation of tongues, they have already entered into the spiritual, heavenly existence that is to be. Only the body to be sloughed off at death lies between them and their ultimate spiritual reality. Thus, they have denied the body in the present and have no use for it in the future. 
end quote. So this is very similar to the platonic view of things that we talked about in our first week together, where the non-material spirit, soul, whatever, the non-material aspect of a person is awesome. It's going to live on forever. Whereas the body, what is material, is yucky and gross and doomed for destruction and good riddance because it's what's keeping us from like the ultimate, you know, good anyway. Paul is writing this whole chapter to refute that kind of thinking. The kind of thinking that would say that the body doesn't matter or that it's going to be sloughed off at death. Jesus did not slough off his body, and so we will not slough off ours. Or, as Gordon Fee puts it, as with Christ, so with us. So after highlighting the absurdity of denying the bodily resurrection of believers in verses 12 through 9, and the cosmic significance of the resurrection in verses 20 through 28. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Paul goes on to address a couple questions, and we see those questions in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Now, Paul immediately says, you fool. So apparently he knew these questions were not being asked with a very humble heart. (laughs) Uh, Again, the Corinthians were kind of fighting against this idea of there being a bodily resurrection at the end of the age. But Paul's going to still, he's going to still go on to to address these questions. And to do that, he's going to use two illustrations from nature. And those two illustrations are seeds and the variety of bodies that are found in nature. So let's go ahead and take a look at the seed illustration first. And I'm going to start reading in verse 36. You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body. Skip down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. Let's stop there. Now, I'm talking about seeds. So let's consider a seed that all of us Floridians can understand. Acorns. Acorns. We all know about acorns and oak trees. We got a ton of them around here. Now, think about the relationship between an acorn and a big, gorgeous oak tree. I'll tell you what. I, I am 41, and in the last few years, I have suddenly become obsessed with trees and birds. Like, what, what is it? Like, you're going along in life, and you don't care about stuff like that, and then all of a sudden, you you really care about it. Now I'm like, I mean, man, a, a good tree can make me tear up. <laughs> I love those things. They're just incredible. Uh, I was driving down my neighborhood the other day, and there was this gorgeous oak tree that was being taken down. It probably did need to be taken down, but man, it just broke my heart. I'm like, what is happening to me? I'm getting old, getting old. I'm watching birds, and I'm loving oak trees, but here we go. Oak trees. Think about the connection between the two. Is an acorn the same thing 
as an oak tree? Is an acorn and oak tree the same? Kind of a trick question, right? From one point of view, no, absolutely not. They're very, very different. You would never look at an acorn and say, oh, wow, what a, what a cute little oak tree. <laughs> Nor would you look at an oak tree and say, wow, that's an incredible acorn. An acorn is an acorn and an oak tree is an oak tree. So they're very different. But in another sense, there is a vital connection between the two. The acorn has the same DNA sequence as the tree it becomes. And if you were to dig deep enough into the root structure of any oak tree, you would eventually get to the original taproot that initially anchored that acorn to the ground. They even share some physical characteristics. Same basic color scheme, green and brown. Both acorns and trees are very hard. You know, if you've ever tried to crack an acorn with your bare hands, it's very difficult. I do remember when my kids were little, we used to go out and stomp them. Uh, but usually my little ones couldn't stomp them on their own. So mom was the big acorn stomper. It was thrilling, you guys, so thrilling. <laughs> Both acorns and oak trees are found out in nature. So yes, an acorn is very, very different from an oak tree, but there's also an element of continuity. Now, if oak trees grew out of marshmallows, we couldn't say that, right? <laughs> because marshmallows and oak trees have nothing in common. But acorns and oak trees, they do. All seeds give us this category of something being very different in its first stage than in its final stage. And yet, and yet those two different things are still deeply connected. There's continuity and discontinuity. What has to happen to the acorn for it to become an oak tree? It has to somehow be trampled into the ground or buried in the dirt by a squirrel. It, 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 it essentially has, it has to die. But that death is not the end, not even close. And here's the point of this illustration. Death is not the end of a human body. Just like that acorn, and more importantly, just like Jesus, we will experience a transformed physical existence. In your homework, I had you identify things about Jesus that were the same before and after his resurrection. Right? So after his resurrection, he still walked and talked and ate. I'm always really encouraged about the fact that the glorified Jesus ate. So we're going to get to eat in heaven. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> All right, so he ate. He still had the nail scars in his hands, so there were certain features uh, uh, physically that, that were, were exactly the same. Um, he was also recognized as Jesus of Nazareth by people that saw him. But there were significant differences as well. I mean, he could appear in rooms without using the door. <laughs> so he was clearly not related to space-time like he was prior to his resurrection and glorification. Continuity. So there was continuity, and yet there was profound discontinuity. 
Well, let's take a look at the second illustration Paul uses, the variety of bodies in nature. Let's pick up in verse 39. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. All right, so here Paul is highlighting the phenomenon of bodies being adapted to their unique existence, each one perfectly fit for their environment. The fish have a certain type of body that is perfectly adapted to water. Domestic cats and dogs have a certain type of body that is adapted to a domestic environment. You don't want to send your sweet little kitty cat out into the jungle. They are not going to live. They, they're, they're, they're a home cat, right? <laughs> Even the sun, moon, and stars are perfectly adapted to exist in their particular place in outer space. Humans are adapted to live on planet Earth. I think it's way cool. Uh, I've got an eight-year-old that's really into space, so we talk a lot about this whole like dream of of colonizing Mars and people going to live on Mars and that's cool it's awesome it's it's possible but I mean we're not gonna walk around Mars in jeans and a t-shirt right like we're gonna have to have some gear because we aren't adapted to live there we're earth creatures uh and so that's 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 what Paul's getting at here is lots of different bodies each one fit for the place in which it lives. In the same way, resurrected human bodies will be perfectly fit for existence in God's new world. So, to put these two illustrations together, here's here's what we see. Here's the point that's being made. When Paul says that we are sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body, he is not saying that these bodies of ours have got to go. He's not saying that. He's saying that these bodies of ours in their current state of decay, corruption, and a whole slew of destructive impulses. They must be transformed. Take a look at verse 50. This one, it really throws us. I want to make sure we, we understand in this context what Paul is actually saying. Verse 50 says, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Now, again, if we are, if we're imposing our like platonic view of things onto this verse, we are going to come up with, we're, you know, we're, we're going to conclude that Paul is saying that bodies can't be in heaven. This does not mean that physical bodies can't be in heaven. First of all, we now know the kingdom of God is on earth, so that wouldn't make any sense anyway. But second of all, if you were to do a word study, this phrase, flesh and blood, and how Paul uses it in other places, you would find that it 
it doesn't mean physical bodies. It means physical bodies in their present form, subject to weakness, decay, death, and sin. Those bodies are ill-suited for the new Jerusalem. And that's why the next few verses are such good news. Take a look, verse 51. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. Now, in the New Testament, a mystery isn't something that's unknowable. It's something that was once hidden and has now been revealed. So here it is. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. So whether you die before Christ returns or you're alive when he returns, either way, this transformation is going to happen. Verse 2, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be, here's the word again, really important word in this whole passage, changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully by now it is ever so clear that Paul is not describing the destruction of bodies. He's describing the radical transformation of bodies. That's what the resurrection guarantees. That's what we are going to experience. That is what this passage is about. This, of course, has massive, massive implications. So let's close our time together by looking at some of those. The first implication of the resurrection is the death of death. There aren't many passages of scripture more exciting than the one we find in this chapter, declaring Christ's victory over the grave. Take a look at it again with me. Verse 54. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's weaving together a couple of Old Testament passages. He's weaving together Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14. He makes some minor adjustments and he's doing this to communicate in no uncertain terms that what the prophets have been telling us, it will come true. And by putting this in the present tense, he's able to highlight the already aspect of the age to come. The final victory is yet to be won. That's something that is going to happen in the future. But ever since the resurrection of Jesus, death has been on its way out, which is why Paul refers to believers who have died as having fallen asleep. For the believer, death 
is the transition point. The acorn is going to become an oak tree. That's guaranteed. The only question mark is when. (laughs) When is Jesus going to return? When is the final resurrection going to happen? When is the new heaven and the new earth written about in Revelation 21 and 22 going to actually be a reality? We don't know. But we do know that it is. And when it is, death will be no more. What a glorious reality that is. All right, so implication number one, the death of death. Implication number two, the complete renewal of the entire universe. All right, I told you we'd be going back to verse 28, and we're going to do that right now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and back up just to give us the context here. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. All right, so Christ was the first to raise. In fact, we talked about a human being being resurrected within this present age, within history, was a, a concept that the, the Old Testament writers just, they, 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 they had no, um, no category for that. This was something totally new and totally unexpected. That's why when you're reading the Gospels, I mean, to us, it's, it's pretty plain. Jesus, Jesus tells them straight up, I'm going to die three days later. I'm going to rise again. And they didn't get it. Like they, they, they did not register in their brains what Jesus was saying. And that's because there's no indication in the Old Testament that a human was going to rise again in, in the middle of history. They, they saw the resurrection as happening at the end of the age and only at the end of the age. And and Jesus really con- confronted those expectations. So anyway, he was the first fruits. He, he rose um, from the dead before everyone else. So he's the first to rise. Then afterwards, at his coming, his second coming, uh, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. Verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. So remember, we talked about in the kingdom of God, there's only one rule. There's only one will. Right now, there's lots of rules. There's lots of wills um, being done on earth. But one day, God's will is the only will. God's rule will be the only rule. All right, so he abolishes all rule, all authority and power for he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death for God has put everything under his feet. Now look at verse 28. When everything is subject to Christ, the son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that, and this is what I want to focus on here, so huge, so that God may be all in all. All right, so a few weeks ago, we hung out in Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah's gorgeous, poetic descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth. And one of the passages we walked through was Isaiah 11. And I want to read you Isaiah 11, verses 8 and 9. It says, An infant will play beside a cobra's pit. And a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. All right, so this is Isaiah's way of 
uh, communicating that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be complete, uh, just beautiful, perfect union between uh, humans and creation. So like, you know, if a baby wants to go out, play with a poisonous snake, it's fine because the, uh, the, the poisonous snake won't be like the cobra won't be dangerous anymore. Like there, there will be this, um, that, that Edenic um, uh, perfect relationship between humanity and creation will be fully restored. So that's what Isaiah is communicating here. Now, how in the world is that going to happen? Here's how. Here's what he says next. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. We see the same metaphor in Habakkuk 2.14. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Man, what an incredible thing. (laughs) That is God's ultimate goal for creation, for the whole entire universe to be filled with God, God, all in all. You know, we are Americans, which means we are radical individualists. We can get really, really focused on me and Jesus or my personal relationship with God. So much so that we forget The story of the Bible is painted on a giant canvas. It's a cosmic story. It's so huge. It's the story of God establishing his rule over all of creation through humanity for his glory. And there is not a square inch of the entire created universe that won't be ultimately redeemed and restored to serve that purpose. And that cosmic renewal of all things is going to be our entire focus in week six of the study. That's the next week following this week. Um, So I'm going to move on, but it's, it's so exciting. And I'll tell you, of all the things in this study, there's been a lot of new things I've learned. But this idea of the renewal of the entire cosmos, um, that it's, it's that big, that's new to me. That's new to me. I, I, that's just not something, I'm not going to say it was never preached or taught to me. I, I might not have heard it. You know, sometimes things can be communicated to you, but you don't, you don't have a category for it or you're not, you're just not attuned to it. So uh, maybe it was preached and, and I wasn't attuned to it, but man, I, I've, I've never, ever heard that before. Um, and, and man, I hear it now and it is just the most exciting thing. Um, it's, what I've, it's what I've been chewing on the most uh, in, in, in the past few weeks and it's, it's just so thrilling. Can't wait to dive into this concept of the complete renewal of the entire universe with you next time. All right, that's implication number two, implication of the bodily resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. There will also be, as we're going to see again next week, uh, resurrection of the entire universe. So cool. All right, implication number three, the radical adjustment of expectations. Look at me at verses 30 through 32. This is a part of the chapter where Paul is 
seeking to communicate the absolute absurdity of the Corinthians' denial of a bodily resurrection of believers. And here's part of his argument, verse 30. He says, you know what, if, if, there's, no, if there's no bodily resurrection of believers at, at the end of the age, why are we in danger every hour? Well, I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying, it's, it's dangerous out there, man. I'm, 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 I could die for, for, for what I'm doing for the sake of, of the gospel. Uh, verse 32, he said, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, right, as a mere man, as somebody who's going to die and be buried in the grave, and that's that, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, we, we shouldn't be out here suffering. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, <laughs> what he's communicating, what he's communicating there is that what we believe about the resurrection has radical implications for what we expect life in this age to be. If there's no resurrection, do what you want. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, <laughs> right? Just do what you want. Go ahead and indulge your natural inclination to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Any suffering for the sake of loving God and others is foolish if this is all there is. But, but, if I embrace my identity as a seed, as an acorn, right? I'm in the acorn stage. If I embrace my identity as an acorn, I can come to terms with the fact that this side of eternity, I am going to lose out. I am not going to have all of my wildest dreams come true. I am not going to live my best life now. I'm just an acorn. And my current state as an acorn shapes my expectations of life in this age. And, and again, we're, 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 we're good old Americans, right? We got this American dream thing going on. And the American dream says, you know what? You, you can be a habitat for, for, for birds and squirrels and, I don't know, whatever else lives in a tree. Lots of things are going on in a tree right? You can spread your branches and you can grow big and strong and, you know, famous and you can just, yeah, just live the dream. And God's word comes to us and says, actually, <laughs> you're not, at the, you're, we're not at that stage right now. No, no, you're an acorn. And, um, you know, basically your, your one job is, is to die. <laughs> <laughs> in in so many metaphorical ways, right? And um, and yeah, it's it's okay if if I'm stomped into the dirt and buried. You know, I can suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of others, for the sake of my enemies. I can love them, even when it's really hard and dangerous. And here's the reason why: because I know 
beyond any doubt that I am going to live my best life later. We talked last week about the reality of, of, of where we live on that eschatological timeline. We're, we're in that in-between spot. We're in between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. We're in the already not yet place. And one thing we can know for sure about living in the already not yet part of the timeline is that life is hard. It's hard. And that is perfectly normal. <laughs> and so understanding the resurrection, understanding uh, this, this hope for a, a future bodily existence in the kingdom of God forever, it, it, it helps us adjust our expectations for this life right now. And that's, that's so huge. It's, it's so important. Implication number four, a renewed commitment to excel in the Lord's work. Now, I think probably even before this study, you know, anytime we heard about heaven, new creation, it's really exciting. It's cool. We, we love it. It's, it's fun. It's thrilling. It's, I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome to think about eternity, right? But I think descriptions of the new creation tend to be exciting to us in the way that new photos from space are exciting to us, right? So a month or so ago, the first images from the Webb telescope were released and they wowed the, the whole world. It's all I saw on social media for at least a day. And my eight-year-old, he loves space. So, I mean, we talked about these at dinner, we sat on the computer, we looked at them and it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly, truly incredible that we not only have these photos, but they are so vivid. And what what's depicted there is is so beautiful. I mean, it's just draw, jaw-droppingly gorgeous. And so we were super pumped in the Sweers family about the Webb telescope photos. But those photos, as incredible as they are, as excited as they made us, as pumped as I was, they did not affect my life in any significant way. They really didn't affect my life at all. And my experience with those photos is analogous to a lot of our experiences with the topic of heaven. Right? So the thought of no more tears or crying or pain, of being with Jesus forever, of all things being made new, like that is so exciting, so thrilling to think about. But what difference is it making in our day-to-day lives? Has it radically altered how we see the world, what we value, what we care about? According to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, it should. It should make a radical difference. Take a look at verse 58. Therefore, so it's kind of summing it all up. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, in light of but the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope 
of a resurrection, bodily resurrection of every single person who is in Christ. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know, based on the reality of the resurrection, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Man, if I'm an acorn and I know I'm going to be an oak tree. If I'm confident in the cosmic renewal of all things and understand that I am an agent of new creation right now, little, 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 little chunk of new creation walking around the old creation right here, right where I live, man, that's got to make a difference, a big difference. But see, the problem is many of us as Christians have been living our lives within the story of, of, of disembodied souls escaping this God-forsaken planet just in time for him to burn the whole thing down, right? Going up in the way up yonder in the sweet by and by, you know, singing in the choir for 50 bajillion years, which I've told you guys, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not a singer. Like I can't even handle a Maverick city music song, like seven minutes. No, thank you. I, let's move on. Like we like, keep it under four. <laughs> let's sing. Let's sing that chorus maybe one more time. And then, you know, like we can be done. I don't sing in the shower. I don't often listen to music in my car. I'm a podcast girl. Right. So anyway, like this whole, this whole story of heaven that, that I, I grew up grew up with of like escaping this horrible place to go up up in the sky and sing forever like that story which is not the biblical story like it has a way of sucking the very life out of our sense of mission and purpose in the world it just does man (laughs) and and that's why this study matters so much man if 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 our trust in Jesus is for the purpose of getting out of here as fast as we can because the whole thing's just going to hell in a handbasket. What that, what that means is that all that really matters is like my spirituality. The world outside the walls of, of, of our churches just doesn't really matter all that much other than we need to get as many of those people say the sinner's prayers we can, right? But like, meeting their actual practical needs, feeding the people that are hungry, clothing the people that need to be clothed, caring about justice, ethnic reconciliation, all of these things that are really important in our world. This, this story of, of escapism, going up into live in the clouds and singing forever, it's just like, what it, what it, what it means is that, that that mission in the wider world um, that we see all over scripture as being important to God, it somehow just isn't as important to us anymore. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15 give us a way better story to live in, a way 
bigger story, a cosmic story, a compelling story, a story that um, encompasses the, the, the whole world. If you are in Christ, your life, your ministry, your mission, every single thing you do out of a heart of love for God and love for neighbor, love for your enemies, however small or insignificant it may seem compared to others. And man, we've got this really unfortunate thing called social media that I don't know about you, but I'm scrolling and I, I just, as I scroll and scroll, I think, man, I just get lamer and lamer, right? Like I'm not doing all these amazing things that so-and-so is doing. I'll tell you what, however small or insignificant it may seem compared to others, what you do for Christ has cosmic world shaping new creation significance because Christ is the risen king of the universe. Death is on its way out. God's plan A is assured. In fact, it's already in motion. And because of that, you can know beyond any doubt that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let this chapter... 1 Corinthians 15, let this chapter cheer you on in whatever it is that God has given you to do. Now, when I finished this lesson on Wednesday night, it led to so many wonderful questions. When you start to reorient your thinking about heaven um, and you start to embrace the story of, of heaven being here, of heaven being an embodied fully embodied existence in a fully renewed, restored planet Earth uh, where, where God comes down and, and he makes all things new. And you start to understand that there's going to be some continuity between our lives now and our lives then, right? So it's, it's not a whole like sing in the choir forever. It's like we're going to have jobs and we're going to travel and we're going to eat and we're going to enjoy culture and we're going to like live lives, real actual lives. It starts to uh, get our heads spinning a little bit and we, there's so many questions. And so um, a lot of them, we have to harness our theologically informed imaginations because scripture just doesn't give us all the details that we would want to have. There's a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. And it's a book, it's a little bit challenging to read from cover, cover to cover. It's a pretty big volume and at places it gets a little heady, but here's what I recommend you do is that you get a copy of that book and you treat it as a reference book. So if you have a question about heaven, like, uh, I don't know, um, say you were wondering, are we going to eat food in heaven or what are our relationships going to be like in heaven? Will we have memories, uh, from, uh, you know, this life in the present age, will those memories carry over to the age to come? All those little things that we just wonder about. Alcorn does a phenomenal job of, again, harnessing his theologically informed imagination and giving us not, not firm answers to all those questions, but some 
really good things to think about. I think he points us in a really good direction. So if this reorientation of your view of heaven to, to a more biblical view of heaven has your head now spinning with a thousand questions about what it's going to be like, that book is going to be tremendously helpful for you. Again, it's Randy Alcorn, his book called Heaven, uh, one of my favorites, and one of the most helpful books for me as I was uh, researching and writing this Bible study. Well, that's all I have for you in this lesson. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to be back with you next time where we talk about Christ and cosmic renewal. It's going to be so good. Bye.